This is Tech Talk with your host, Tom DiOria. Tom will spend the next hour making your life with technology a little easier with explanations of the different aspects of today's technology and how it can benefit your home, small office, or enterprise. Now here's your host, Tom DiOria. Welcome to IMI Tech Talk. It's the first Sunday of July. I hope you all had a great 4th of July. And if you're driving home now, you have a safe trip. We're on at 6 p.m. in the New York listing area and 3 p.m. in Arizona. And today we're live from our New York offices. We're going to be discussing the password problem with our guest, Michelle Mazarek. I'm Tom DiOria. I'm the CEO of Information Methods Incorporated, and together with our weekly guests, our show will help our listeners, whether a business or home technology user, make better use of all aspects of technology. Just in case you're a first-time listener, in our first segment, Tech Talk provides you with a review of last week's most significant events in technology. We start with their increased coverage of New York's technology scene, and we follow this with an industry-wide report, which could contain information on conferences, announcements by vendors, new releases of software equipment, or new contract opportunities. One of our guests followed us from many aspects of business and industry, and if you wish us to consider a topic for a future show, you can email your suggestions to techtalk, that's T-E-C-H-T-A-L-K, at imi-us.com, and we'll get back to you pretty quickly. Anytime after our show introduction, please give us a call or send an email message with questions on today's topic or anything else we might be able to help you with. You can call 277-KFNX. That's 277-5369. And if you're outside the 602 listing area, call us toll-free at 1-866-536-1100. You can send us email questions at that email address I gave you, techtalk at imi-us.com. And we're also being simulcast on the web, so if you can't get to your radio and you want to listen to us live, you can go to uh, KFNX's website, which is 1100kfnx.com. And if you want to listen to this show again or any of our previous shows, please go to our website, which is imi-us.com. In the upper right-hand corner is the Tech Talk button. Click on that. All the shows are there, archived. You can download them, send them to your friends, listen to them as many times as you want. It's free, so please take advantage of that. Our first segment is our Week in Review. It's your increased coverage of technology events in New York City and around the world. It's compiled by Jose Batista, Dave Brandon, and Dan Dioria. Okay. Gotham Mist tells us that thanks to $1.2 million in funding from eight city council members representing Queens, the Bronx, Central, and South Brooklyn, and the Upper West Side, countdown clocks may soon proliferate at bus stops across all five boroughs. That is, once the DOT, Department of Transportation, finishes installing the 100-plus countdown clocks promised about this time last year, when the city council set aside $2.8 million for them. So far, they've only managed to install three. Indeed, if you've been lucky enough to bask in the golden glow of a bus countdown clock, you've either been waiting for the bus on Staten Island, where the Department of Transportation rolled out two trial clocks last summer, or waiting for an express bus to Staten Island. Manhattan's sole bus countdown clock is near City Hall at the corner of Broadway and Barclays. While some have argued that bus countdown clocks are irrelevant in a smartphone, Bus Time World, the World Riders Alliance, which rallied for the citywide bus countdown clock, says that this argument disregards elderly riders who fumble with technology, not to mention those who can't afford a smartphone, much less data fees. 
The DOT has agreed to work with each council member to determine exact locations for the clocks which collect data from GPS technology already installed in city buses and cost an estimate of $20,000 each to install. Hmm, pretty interesting number. The DOT has yet to confirm exactly how many stop clocks will be installed and by when. Cranes tells us the City Economic Development Corporation, EDC, announced the launch of a program to bring high-speed Internet access to so-called digital deserts in the Bronx and Queens. At least a year in the making, the $5.3 million public-private partnership called Connect IBZ to bring high-speed commercial broadband networks to three industrial business zones in Brooklyn, one in Long Island City, which is in Queens, and in Queens. More than 5,000 businesses in four neighborhoods stand to benefit. The city will be supporting the rollout with $1.6 million from the state's Connect New York Broadband Grant Program. The remaining funding will come from two providers, Exchange Telecom, a fixed wireless provider, and Stealth Communications, which will be bringing a fiber optic cable network underground. Internet in those neighborhoods is currently provided mainly by DSL copper lines, which offer low speeds of just a few megabytes per second, and in a few places by Time Warner Cable. Exchange and Stealth, and that's spelled X-C-H-A-N-G-E, will be offering Internet speeds up to one gigabyte per second. Greater connectivity is needed by all kinds of businesses, not just tech companies, and access to high-speed broadband will spur growth and create jobs. Efforts to expand high-speed broadband typically face a chicken or egg dilemma. Providers don't like to build networks in areas that are densely populated for fear of being unable to recover their investment, but lack of connectivity discourages other businesses from locating in those areas. I think the city tried to do this themselves. Failed. Italy tells us that IBM had a pretty tech-savvy workforce since it was founded in 1911. Big Blue we are talking about here after all, but it wasn't until recently that the Armonk, New York-based company started working with Dynamic Signal to see what would happen if its sales force and other marketing employees promoted its software products using their personal social media accounts. IBM created an internal online hub that allowed employees to easily share promotions on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, while they could also privately pass information back and forth to help their marketing sales. A 1,000 employees have participated in the program, which gives them about six pieces of content every day, and they can choose to share or not share with their followers. The program has been a resounding success with more IBM employees banging down the door to participate. That's a quote from IBM. Here is one of the reasons why the company late last year launched a business-to-business appeal called uh, Pound New, York, New Way to Work, which accrued 120 million digital impressions and drove 141,000 clicks to campaign content. Thanks, Barge, sharing content through Dynamic Signal's VoiceStorm software. Interestingly, IBM staffers are only incentivized by a points-based leaderboard where they're not getting bonuses, though it's said it's clearly helping members make sales. The Pound new way to work effort garnered a team of viral marketing campaign of the year distinction award in the 13th annual American Business Awards in Chicago. Okay. Apple violated antitrust laws by colluding with publishers to raise electronic book prices when it entered a mar- the market in 2010 that had been dominated by Amazon.com. 
Um, that was a decision by the Federal Appeals Court last Tuesday. A three-judge panel of the Second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Manhattan ruled two to one that a lower court judge correctly finding uh, Apple Inc. violated the law to upset Amazon.com's control of the market. The appeals court also agreed that U.S. District Judge Denise Cote was right in 2013 to order the injunctive relief to ensure that Cupertino-based company didn't commit additional violations of the antitrust laws. In a statement, Apple said the ruling did nothing to change the fact that it did not conspire to fix ebook pricing. Okay. Some Internet users in San Francisco Bay weren't able to connect on Tuesday morning, but it wasn't an issue of uh, congestion on the network or even a sophisticated cyber attack. The reason behind the outage was a lot less tech-savvy. Someone cut the wires. Apparently, this wasn't an isolated incident. The FBI is investigating uh, nearly a dozen physical attacks on fiber optic cables in Northern California over the past year. And this week's attack, someone reportedly broke into an underground vault and snipped three fire optic cables belonging to Colorado-based service provider Level 3 in Zayo, resulting in outages for businesses and residents in and around Sacramento. That was just the latest in a string of similar attacks dating back to at least July of 2014 and reaching as far as Arizona. Previously, a fiber optic uh, cable owned by AT&T was cut near San Jose, knocking out telephone and data services to homes and businesses in Silicon Valley. But experts in the FBI say the motivation behind the latest wave of West Coast attacks may be more malicious than simple acts of vandalism, such incidents also highlight a serious vulnerability in our critical Internet infrastructure, the fact that fiber optic cables are highly viable and rarely monitored. Okay, based on that high note, uh, we're going to take a break. Um, we're going to get to our guest and talk to you today about the password problem. It's July 5th, 2015, and as I mentioned in the opening, hope you all had a great 4th of July. Uh, this is IMI's Tech Talk. I'm Tom DiOrio. We're going to take a break. Please stay tuned. We're going to be right back after these messages. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. It's the 4th of July weekend, 2015. And as I mentioned to you before the break, uh, we're going to be talking today about the password problem with our guest, Michelle Mazurek. And she is an assistant professor of computer science with joint appointments in the Maryland Cybersecurity Center and the Human Computer Interaction Lab. Michelle's research is focused on how computer security and human behavior interact. Uh, she is interested in designing systems to help users more effectively manage their privacy and security. And she received her doctorate in electrical and computer engineering from Carnegie Mellon University in 2014, about 100 years since I taught there. Uh, Michelle, thanks a lot for taking the time to be with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so password security. We're, we constantly tell people that passwords are important and they shouldn't be their birthday, but how big a problem is it today? 
Today, there's really two main problems that happen with passwords. Um, the biggest one is phishing, and in that case, um, it doesn't really matter how strong or easy your password is because what you're actually doing is um, being fooled into typing your password into uh, a fake website somewhere and basically giving it directly to the attacker. So no matter how strong your password is, uh, that doesn't really help you with that problem. But then uh, the other major problem that we have has to do with the reuse of passwords. So basically, uh, when someone breaks into a network somewhere and captures a password file, they want to try to reuse those passwords um, everywhere that they can. So they get a list of people's email addresses, and they have to try to crack those passwords and try to reuse them on other accounts. Uh, and that is an issue where pass password strength actually matters a lot because if your password is stronger, uh, it'll take the attacker longer to figure it out and you'll have time to go and change it on the other accounts that you're using, hopefully, uh, before the attacker manages to, to reuse it in a different account for you. Is this a big risk, a medium risk? I'd say it's a, uh, it's, it's a medium to large risk. It's, uh, it's, it happens quite a lot. I think... Um, it happens quite a lot. It maybe doesn't happen to um, every individual person all the time, but you know, you increasingly see instances of password files um, being stolen. And we know from lots of research that people do reuse their passwords quite a lot. So uh, every time there's one of these big password leaks, it puts those other accounts that people are reusing their passwords for at risk. That's pretty scary. We've seen that you've done a lot of work on password guessability. What is password guessability? Is that me guessing your password? And should we care about this? Right. Guessability is a way of measuring how strong a password is uh, by considering how many tries it's going to take a smart attacker to guess it. So a smart attacker is going to, you know, start by guessing the most common passwords, the things that people are most likely to do, and sort of keep going in kind of a frequency order, uh, approximately. And so um, it's a way to sort of measure how strong a particular password is based on how long it's going to take an attacker to guess it. And this matters because if we don't know how to actually measure how strong a password is, then we don't know whether these different password policies and meters and things that you see are actually helping the situation, right? So you keep seeing increasing stuff like people telling you, oh, your password has to be 12 characters long and include a capital letter and a symbol and at least two numbers and so many things. And uh, the truth is a lot of those things really haven't been measured, so we don't know if they're actually helping or they're just, you know, annoying people without a lot of actual benefit to password strength. I gather you have a uh, team studying this. Is it as simple as me just guessing, or are these sophisticated people have, you know, computers with algorithms on it that somehow match stuff up to you? I mean, what, what right. are you guys so, um, doing? So the sophisticated people, so we look at it from the point of view of um, people who aren't trying to guess, you know, your specific password, so they're not looking for Tom's password. They're just looking at a big pile of passwords and hoping to get as many as possible um, as they can from the list. So they're not going to be specifically doing stuff like guessing the name of your dog, but they are going to be guessing trends that they know that people do use, you know, broadly across people. And so they, um, there are a lot of smart tools that they use and algorithms that they use to sort of uh, learn from other password data that's been revealed. So to do things like, um, for example, we know that people always uh, tend to put their digits and their symbols at the end of the password or their capital letters at the beginning. And so the smart attackers have algorithms that will guess based on those kinds of patterns. How will they guess the name of my dog? What we're talking about is not people who are specific.
specifically trying to attack you. They're just going after uh, a bunch of people. So they don't try to guess the name of your dog. They're just guessing trends that lots of people tend to use. So maybe uh, we know, for example, princess comes up a lot, and we think that's because a lot of people have dogs named princess. So it's not because they know about your dog specifically. They just know about sort of general trends that people tend to say. When you were doing this study, you did a, a large study at, at uh, your university? Um, yeah, so... Uh, 25,000 users? Yeah, so uh, what we actually did was we were able to um, look at the real passwords of uh, all 25,000 users at Carnegie Mellon a couple of years ago for the single sign-on system. Let me ask you a question before... Let me ask you a question before you finish. How did you get them? Uh, It was a very complicated process. It took us about three years. Uh, And what happened is that uh, we were working with the IT department um, and the the IT security department at Carnegie Mellon to uh, look at what they were doing with their passwords. And we sort of together discovered that there was a problem in the way that the passwords were being stored, um, that they weren't being stored in the most best practice, uh, secure possible way. And so what we were able to do was uh, to help them improve that. And in the process, um, we got them, we convinced them to allow us to do some analysis on the passwords uh, at the same time. And so basically what we did was uh, the passwords themselves were taken to a isolated machine. It was air-gapped. It was locked behind a bunch of doors. And all of our analysis code was run on the passwords um, by the one trusted IT person who had the key to actually open the password file. Um, and so I myself never saw a single password nor anyone on our research team. Uh, we just wrote some analysis uh, software. It produced some graphs and some statistics for us. Uh, so you really, didn't have people... the passwords, you really didn't have the passwords linked to IDs, it sounds like. No, absolutely not. The whole and thing was it also very sounds carefully. Like, it also sounds like you could have hacked into it since it wasn't secured too well, but you took the high road there. So well, um, it would have been ve- it would have been very difficult for someone to hack into it, um, but uh, it was slightly more possible than it should have been. So we were able to uh, alert the the IT staff about that, and they were able to improve the system. So it turned out that the uh, the commercial vendor that they had bought their single sign-on system from was not actually using the best practices in storing the passwords. So. Okay, we've got about a minute left in this segment, so I'm going to ask you a question. I know you're not going to be able to finish, but so you had 25,000 users check yeah. their passwords. What surprised you the most besides Princess was used a lot? <laughs> right, so uh, so as I mentioned um, previously, we found out that the location of these digits and special characters is really important. Um, people who, because so many people put their uh, digits and their special characters at the end and put their capital letters at the beginning, uh, those passwords are much easier to guess than people who spread their um, capital letters and symbols and things out in the middle of the password somewhere else. So that was one of the things. Um, and we also found out we had been, we were able to, um, to compare these passwords with some uh, information about the people who were using them. And so one of the things that we checked was uh, how often people logged in and whether that had anything to do with how strong their passwords were. And we were sort of expecting that people who logged in all the time would have stronger passwords because, you know, maybe you'd remember it better if you have to type it in constantly. Uh, And we actually didn't find that. So we were really surprised to find out there was no relationship between how long 
uh, how frequently people were logging in and how strong their passwords were. That's interesting because I would think you'd want a shorter password since you're doing it all the time. You don't want to spend That's also true. An, an extra yeah. five seconds typing 20 characters instead of two. Yeah, yeah. so we could have expected it that way also, but we found actually no real relationship there, so we were pretty surprised by that. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Michelle Mazarek from... Uh, University of Maryland. Yes, thank you. <laughs> the Maryland no Cyber Security Center and the Human Computer Interaction Lab. Uh, we're talking to you today about the password problem, and you all should be listening to this because hopefully we're going to get some suggestions here. I'm Tom Dioria. It's IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. It's the 4th of July weekend, 2015. It's July 5th, and if you're driving home, drive carefully. Please stay tuned. We're going to be right back after these messages. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom Dioria. It's July 5th, 2015. Today's topic is the password problem with our guest, uh, Michelle Mazarek. And we were talking just uh, before the break about some of the findings uh, she and her team had looking at 25,000 users. I think that's probably a larger sample in most people who are studying this problem, if there are other people studying this problem. And Michelle gave us two examples of uh, what surprised them. Uh, anything else? Um, well, so one of the things that we were really interested um, in doing in this study was trying to understand how to do passwords research better because most of the time when you want to understand passwords, you are not lucky enough to actually be able to use um, a real a real plain text data set like we had with 25,000 real users. Um, so we actually compared our set to some of the other ways that people study passwords, uh, which includes things like asking people to come into the lab and make passwords for you, uh, which, you know, you can expect might not work that well because people sort of don't behave in a lab the way they do in real life. We also compared it to another popular approach, which is um, starting from leaked sets of passwords online that have been revealed in various places, and that's also sort of less than optimal because you're starting with someone who uh, sort of admits that they've stolen something from somewhere and uh, is, is giving you this information, you're sort of treating it as factual which is maybe not the best choice also. Um, and so we were able to find out that uh, actually using a lab study like this, you can actually get a pretty good approximation of what people do with real passwords, um, even when you have them make it for a study, uh, which is great because that means that we can do more research in the future uh, in a controlled way by asking people to make passwords for us in the lab. We were able to uh, compare the passwords of users from different parts of the university, and we found, for example, that um, users from the computer science and engineering departments made stronger passwords than the users from, for example, the business school, uh, which was which we thought was kind of an interesting result. Now, you had um, 25,000 users to pick from yeah. uh, and to study. I mean, that to me seems like a tremendous uh, resource. Uh, I gather there must be other people doing similar research, but I can't believe anybody's got this breadth of, of uh, passwords and people to study. Is that a, an accurate statement? Um, mostly. So people have had larger sets, but they I don't believe they've had larger sets of plain text passwords. So um, 
so a friend of mine, Joe Bonneau, who works at Stanford, um, did a pretty cool study with 50 million passwords from Yahoo. But uh, because in order to, to keep the privacy of the Yahoo users, uh, they weren't actually able to look at the plain text of the passwords themselves. They were basically only able to count how many times the same password appeared. So they were able to get some interesting information from that. But um, but as far as I know, we have the biggest sample of uh, real plain text passwords from high-value accounts like these that actually protect things that people really care about, like their grades or their health center appointments for students at the university or tax forms for the staff of the university, things like that. Now, do you have any way of judging hackability? I don't know if that's a word, but since you since you looked at all of these, was there any way to tell if um, you know due to due to your findings or the sample level whether or not uh, people were more prone to be hacked than you know people with other uh, profiles? We could compare people within the university. We couldn't really compare them to people outside the university. So uh, within the university, we found the the biggest result that we found, like I said, was that. Um, People in the in the computer science and engineering departments had some of the strongest passwords, and people in the business school had some of the weakest. Um, we also checked uh, for things like age. We didn't really find an effect. You know, we thought maybe younger or older people might have stronger or weaker passwords. We found um, we didn't really find much there, and we checked a couple of other sort of similar things, but didn't find a lot of other interesting sort of results in that way. So you didn't you didn't have an opportunity to correlate it to uh, or ask them whether or not in fact they were actually hacked. Or, right. Or, so you know, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so as far as we know, nobody has actually uh, accessed the passwords from the university. So we were just looking at them uh, by applying the the best algorithms that we had to try to figure out how strong they were. If you could tell our listeners one thing that they can immediately do to better protect their passwords whether at home or at work, is there one thing? Uh, I think the one biggest thing that you can do is turn on two-factor authentication for any important account that you have that supports it. Um, it's the, That's a really great way to add a lot of protection at very low cost. Um, I guess another thing I would suggest is uh, people always tell you that writing down your password is the worst thing that you can do, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and disagree with that a little bit. Um, it's much better not to reuse passwords if you can avoid it. And, of course, you know, if you're not going to write them down, then you pretty much have to reuse them because there's no way that you can remember all those things. So we would actually recommend um, that instead of reusing important passwords, you do write them down, but you just sort of write them down in a smart way. So, you know, maybe not on a Post-it note attached to your monitor. Maybe you write it down <laughs> on a piece of paper and you put it, you know, inside your wallet with your money because... By the time someone has your wallet, they probably, you know, you have other problems, right? So you sort of are already protecting that information. Or maybe if you're going to store it in a file on your computer, then you should, you know, password protect that file, and then you only have to remember one password uh, or use a password manager or something like that. But it's better to avoid reusing important passwords if you can. Oh, so that's, that's interesting because the, the, yeah. the theory there, if you're safe once, you'll be safe twice. Well, I guess the theory is that uh, you know uh, you can't uh, you can't prevent all the things from happening, so you sort of have to uh, play the odds a little bit. And the and uh, by the time someone you know steals your wallet, you uh, you have bigger problems that you have to worry about.
Okay, so tell us a little bit more about the two-factor authentication. What what really is it, and why do you right. think it's a good solution? Um, so, in most cases, when you're using a password or trying to sign in somewhere, um, we think of authentication as requiring one of three things. It can require what you know, which is something like a password or your PIN for your ATM card. Um, it can require something that you have, like a physical token. So this might mean that, you know, you physically have your credit card or you physically have uh, an ID that you have to swipe to get in a door somewhere or something like that. Um, and it might also be something that you are, which is biometric, so you might need your fingerprint or your eye print or something to that effect. And what two-factor authentication does is it actually requires two of these things at one time. So the most common current example is... Um, is something like a password plus a code that you can get texted to your phone. So the password is something that you know, and then your phone is something that you have. And so this has the uh, the nice benefit that if someone gets your password either in a phishing attack or because it was leaked from a database somewhere, they can't use it unless they also have your phone. So it, it just adds an extra layer of protection. Um, this is sort of mostly true. Uh, there are maybe some cases where people can get around it, but... Uh, for sort of casual or opportunistic attackers who just want to, you know, they're not going after you particularly, they just want someone's password, this will stop most of that. So this is sort of increasingly available. Um, Gmail has it, many banks have it, things like that. Uh, it's a pretty small additional hassle, and it provides quite a lot of extra protection. So it's like um, a bank wanting to authenticate me by sending me a code is only sent to me that I enter each time I want to sign on. Exactly. So you have to enter your password, but you also have to enter this little code that they send to you uh, maybe via a text message on your phone, and that sort of provides additional security that uh, you're really you and not just someone who stole your password. Okay, that's good advice. We're going to take a break. We're talking okay. about the password problem. It's Sunday, July 5th, 2015. I'm Tom DiOrio on IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. Please stay tuned, and we'll get back to Dr. Mazarek as soon as you hear these messages. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom Diori. It's the 5th of July, 2015. Hope you all had a great 4th. And if you're driving home, drive carefully. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Michelle Mazurek about the password problem. And, Michelle, if our listeners want to follow up with you on any of this, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, yeah, so they can um, reach me via uh, via email um, at the University of Maryland. So my, my email is uh, mmazurk at umd.edu, or you can find my webpage through the Maryland Cybersecurity Center at the University of Maryland. Great. Okay, so um, at the beginning of, of uh, our conversation, uh, we talked a little bit about system administrators having... In some cases, not such good policies. What do you? How do you advise them? Right. So, um, I think historically, a lot of these policies have been adopted, sort of on the hope that they were helpful, rather than empirical knowledge of what actually works. And um, our group has spent a lot of time trying to understand uh, what really works um, to help people make more secure passwords. 
And um, in general, we find that uh, the best thing you can do is add length requirements rather than adding more um, more symbols or more uppercase letters and stuff up to a point. Uh, these actually result in stronger passwords and they annoy your users less. Uh, obviously, there's sort of some exceptions to this. If you uh, if you only require a 16-character password, you know, you're going to have some people who just type the number one 16 times in a row, and that's not really going to work out too well. So you have to sort of have a, a minimum level of, uh, of security that you enforce. But for the most part, people would prefer to make longer passwords rather than having to invent uh, additional symbols and numbers and things like that. Um, well, I would, you, men- yeah. you mentioned that... Um you know, writing down your password is a good idea so that you're consistent. Um, do you recommend change, you know, having a policy that you every six months or whatever, periodically you have to change your password, or is that really not a relevant thing? I'm so glad you asked. I think this is one of the other uh, common myths about passwords. Um, it turns out that changing your password frequently is actually, uh, in general, not that helpful. Uh, because most of the time when you force people to change their password a lot, they change it in very predictable ways. You know, they add uh, the year on the end, and so the password was password 2014, and now it's password 2015. Or maybe they just add one, and so the password was, you know, princess 11, and now it's princess 12. Uh, and it turns out these things are, are quite predictable. And so uh, someone who knew your old password has a very good chance, the research shows, of guessing your new password when you change it. So all this is doing actually is uh, annoying your users a lot by making them uh, make new passwords all the time. And sometimes it may actually be causing them to make weaker passwords because, you know, creating a strong password that you can remember is actually a lot of cognitive effort. If you make people do it all the time, they stop being willing to put in the effort to really do that. And it's really not getting you a lot of benefits. So if I were in charge, I would... uh, get rid of all of these policies that require people to change their passwords all the time. Well, that's good to hear because I did that early on when we switched the uh, email vendors, and my administrator decided that we had to change them every three months, and after the first two times when it became really uh, annoying, we changed our policy. So I'm yeah. glad to hear so that. i, I think... got to make sure he listens to this show. <laughs> yes, I think um, that's, uh, that's one of the most widespread myths is that that's helping when it's really not adding a lot of value at all. So. Now, we've heard that passwords are going to become a thing of the past. You mentioned uh, in the um, two-factor authentication mm-hmm. uh, biometrics uh, and tokens. Right. I mean, are they going to be possibly used together and uh, you don't have to have a password? Yeah, so um, people have been talking about passwords going away for about 30 years now, uh, but you may have noticed passwords have not actually gone away yet. We we seem to have more of them than ever, in fact. Um, And there's actually a few reasons for this. Uh, There's a cool study, um, again, from my friend Joe Stanford a couple years ago, that if you take into account everything, including the cost to deploy your new technology when you consider um, how difficult it is to use, when you consider what happens if someone loses their token and you have to replace it, uh, when you consider wanting to be accessible to a broad variety of people, it actually turns out passwords are still sort of the most effective thing that we know how to do. Uh, A lot of the other things are good in sort of one of those areas, but overall they're not as good. And, you know, the biggest issue with biometrics is that if your password is is lost or stolen, then you make a new password, 
Uh, on the other hand, if you're using your fingerprint to log in somewhere and your fingerprint gets stolen, what are you going to do? You're sort of out of luck. By the, you know, you can't just go get a new fingerprint, um, which is sort of an unfortunate problem. So I think um, all of these types of things, biometrics and tokens, are really useful as a second factor uh, in sort of a two-factor scheme. But, um, but I don't think they're going to actually replace passwords entirely anytime soon. Okay, it's just like, uh, you know, computers were going to get rid of everybody using paper. That quite hasn't happened. I think it's increased the use of paper. So, Yeah. So in addition to password security, I understand you're doing a study about users' online security ha behavior. What's that all about? Yeah, so this starts from the idea that uh, everybody hears more computer security advice than they could possibly ever listen to. Uh, if you tried to listen to all of the advice that you hear, you would probably never leave your house, and you'd probably never do anything else uh, in your life except deal with security advice. Uh, and so we know that some of this advice that people are getting is actually not very useful, like telling people to change their passwords all the time. Uh, so, And we also know that nobody, people aren't listening to all of it because it's impossible. So what we kind of want to find out is where do people get their advice from uh, and how do they decide what they're going to listen to versus what they're going to ignore? How do they decide which advice is trustworthy? Uh, because the idea is to try to make it so that um, the things that people listen to hopefully line up a little bit better with the things that are actually useful and correct rather than people sort of uh, choosing advice that may seem trustworthy but is not actually the most useful thing that you could hear about. So uh, my students and I are currently uh, doing some um, some research, some interviews and investigations to understand uh, where people get this advice and how they process it. That sounds like an interesting study. We'll have to have you on and uh, talk to you about that when you're ready. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we've got about a minute left. Can you quickly tell us about the uh, Maryland Cybersecurity Center? Sure. Or the um, this is a Human Computer Interaction Lab, whichever one you'd like to cover in the last minute they have. Okay. Uh, so these are, these are research labs at the University of Maryland. And, uh, you know, the, at the Cybersecurity Center, we have uh, a lot of folks doing uh, really interesting research related to different aspects of cybersecurity. So uh, I'm doing a lot of work on how human behavior relates to security. We also have some folks working on uh, newer and better cryptography and ways of improving software security to prevent hacking, uh, doing a lot of work on improving cybersecurity education, things like that. Um, so it's a really it's a really fun place where there's a lot of uh, exciting folks doing doing interesting work. Uh, and then I also work in the in the human computer interaction lab, um, you know, because we know that uh, the human behavior issue is just so important to making sure that that security really works. Um, because if people, you know, if security gets in the way of people trying to do their main job or get their main goal accomplished. <laughs> We know they're just not going to prioritize security. You know, neither would I, right? That's that's how it works. So it's really important to make sure that we handle security with uh, with people's main goals and priorities in mind. Terrific, Michelle. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us, and I wish you all your luck in, uh, in the rest of your research. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. I want to thank Terry Ruggiero, IMI's president, Dave Brandon, Jose Batista, and Dan DiOria for our Week in Review. Taylor Redden is our producer. Tess Henshaw is our associate producer. 
Matt Campagni is our executive producer. And without Robert Baumbach in the KFNX AM 1100 production department, not a word would you hear. Thanks again for listening, and please don't forget to tune into Tech Talk next week at 6 p.m. New York on KFNX AM 1100. Remember to send us your suggestions for future shows or ask us questions by sending an email to techtalk at imi-us.com. Drive safely if you're coming home after this uh, long 4th of July weekend. Have a great week, and thanks again for listening.